You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Buenas tardes, all you beautiful people in the Zoom world. Look at all these wonderful folks in little tiny squares. Uh, for those of you that don't know, this is City Lights Live. Remember back in the day when City Lights used to do these beautiful events up in the poetry room? Well, now, because of the pandemic, we're on in the Zoom mundo, as we say. So uh, we're continuing the tradition of bringing you writers, poets, activists, various rabble-rousers. And tonight, we are so very excited. City Lights is very, very exciting indeed to be welcoming Aminata Forna in her new book. Man, this is going to be a beautiful, beautiful evening conversation with uh, Aminata and Yula Biss promoting the Libro. And there is going to be a uh, Q&A at the end of the conversation for those of you who have burning questions. Tonight, tonight, City Lights is over. La Luna excited to be welcoming Aminata Forna, who is the author of the novels Ancestor Stones, The Memory of Love and the Hired Man, as well as the memoir The Devil That Danced on the Water. Forna's books have been translated into 16 languages. Her essays have appeared in Granta, The Guardian, The Observer, and Vogue. And she is currently the Lanin Visiting Chair of Poetics at Georgetown University. And we're celebrating this amazing book of hers tonight. And in conversation with Aminata is Yula Biss. She's the author of four books, most recently, Having and Being Had. Her book on immunity was named one of the 10 best books of 2014 by the New York Times Book Review and Notes from No Man's Land won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism in 2009. Eula's essays and prose poems have recently appeared in The Guardian, The New York Review of Books, The Believer, Freeman's, Jubilant, The Baffler, Harper's, and The New York Times Magazine. She teaches nonfiction writing at Northwestern University. People, please give a warm Zoom Mundo welcome to Amanita Forna and Eula Bliss. Thank you so much, Josiah and City Lights. Thanks for having us here. And Amanata, thank you for being here to discuss this wonderful book. Oh, likewise. <laughs> welcome, I, everybody. It's wonderful to be here. Yes, welcome all. So Amanata, as you know, I just love this book. And I do want to remind everyone, since we're not in the bookstore, since we're since we're virtual tonight, to use the link um, to purchase a copy if you're if you're interested in a copy. This book is beautiful. It's it, it does so much and does it so well. It's it covers it crosses continents. It discusses politics. It talks about people. It talks about animals. It talks about personal matters, political matters. It goes. It seems everywhere, as you seem to have been everywhere. It's a book that really travels. But throughout, you you carry with you. This is one of the things I admire about the speaker in these essays. Um, but I, I also admire it about the book. You carry with you your, your own sense of home. And there are occasions in these essays where you explicitly address this particular sense of home that is somewhat different than some of the people you run across in the United States who you mentioned think of home as, first of all, in the past, somewhere that you used to be. 
not in the present and and that think of home as singular not plural and and you write about for you home is plural it's homes and and you have family all over the world could you maybe start out by talking about your sense of home? It's I, I saw this book. It, it's maybe the one of the lessons, the biggest lessons that I, I learned from it was this sense of how to be at home in the world. You know, that seemed to be, if it were an instructional manual, which it isn't, it's literature. I, I feel like that would be the instruction is how to be at home in the world. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. I'm glad you take that from it. I suppose that, you know, I, be, I began to question the idea of home, singular, very early on in my life because I was born of two homes. You know, I, I had my home in Britain, my mother's Scottish, and I had my home in Sierra Leone, my father's West African. And one never overtook the other, right? One never displaced the other. They were just two homes. And, you know, since... I'm of an age, it has struck me as extraordinary that the idea of home as singular has gained more and more ascendance. Mm -hmm. When I would have thought it would be the other way around, that we would begin to see home as something that could be uh, multilateral, that could be multiple. Yeah. So over the years, I've done many interviews and at some point in the interview, and over the years since I became a writer, I've done many interviews. And at some point during the interviews, the interviewer would almost inevitably say, so where is home? Mm. Clearly they were expecting me to answer in the singular yes. or they would catch me out. I would be talking about Sierra Leone and I'd say, so, you know, when I go home mm. and they say, oh, but that's, so that's home if we were in London. Mm. And I say, well, actually, because when I'm in Sierra Leone, I say, well, we're going home mm. in a week. That's home, right? Mm. And now home is the United States. And I think of that as home. But I would equally say about, for example, I mean, we can't travel this year, but we, we go home every year to Britain to see our families. But then if I was there, I would say, well, we're going home to America now. <laughs> you know, home to me has always been in multiple locations and I don't, I've never seen that as clashing. And I think that we've, you know, I suppose we've got very stuck on the idea of home because people do move around and because we have so many narratives that are set in the idea of one home. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, Eula, well, you're not, you're not a fiction writer, I suppose you think a bit, <laughs> but, you know, fiction has a lot to answer for in this, that there's only one idea of home. Mm -hmm. So much fiction is vested in that and so much fiction has vested in making claims to home, making claims to earth, making claims to soil and location. So the narratives that humankind has told itself, and we can talk about this later, but the, you know, the narratives that humankind has told itself seem to me purposeful in trying to create a single idea of home and a single identity. Mm -hmm. And I've always grown up with more I mean, multiply. I mean, you know, I'll tell you briefly about my family, you know, in my family. Well, let's say we, we currently live on the continents of America, Europe, Asia and Australasia. Am I forgetting anybody? I don't think so. And then in my immediate family, I have the nationalities of, OK, Britain and you know, West Africa, Sierra Leone, which you know about. 
And then my, my younger brother's wife is Chinese and my brother's first wife was Iranian and second wife is Danish. And my sister was married to a man from the West Indies via Britain. Um, and my mother's husbands have been Sierra Leonean and a New Zealander and a Canadian. So we've always, always grown up with multiple nationalities uh, in our family and, and always been obliged to negotiate them and negotiate the land in which we've lived in the, within those multiple families. And it isn't as hard as it looks. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no reason why we shouldn't all do it. You know, so this, you know, the, the retrenchment that we're seeing now, it is one of the things I wanted to explore and the fear of, the fear of difference and the fear of leaving home and making a home somewhere else. Yes, I love this idea that for you, home is where you're headed rather than where you've been, that, that <laughs> home, home is the destination. Could we hear a little bit from the book? Will you, will you read a bit before we talk more? Yeah, why don't I do that? So I'm, I'm going to read a little bit about, well, actually, we're going to read a little bit from the first essay, which is about flying, because I, I mean, I wrote this essay long before lockdown, <laughs> but it could have been inspired by lockdown. And it's really, you know, I spent a lot of time on aircraft because of my many homes. And because when I was a kid, my father was so determined that we should have a British education for reasons that, you know, we lived in the poorest country in the world and the education that we would get there was not going to be, was not going to equip us for the world. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure British education does entirely, <laughs> but it was the best <laughs> we could do. And he put everything into it, my father. We, we didn't own a house. As that generation did, everything was about educating their children. So in a way, I didn't appreciate that at the time, but it did turn me, along with the things we've talked about, into a world traveller. So I like to sit in the window seat. As do I. I'm so glad you say that, because most people fight for the aisle seat. Yes, it's, I've never understood that. <laughs> I've never understood it either. I like to sit in the window seat. And I, I can sit for a nine-hour flight. I mean, as long as it's not nighttime, although there are bits in this about nighttime. You know, looking out of the window, I, I don't get nearly as much done on planes as I hope because I think I'll work, but if I've got the window seat, mm -hmm. I spend the time gazing out of the window. On an overcast day, the plane breaks through the cloud and into sunlight. As the plane climbs, below you clouds shift on separate strata, drifting continents composed of shadows and light. Sunlight reflects from their dazzling peaks, improbable mountains rise, one the shape perhaps of an anvil or an oak. The occasional sight of another plane reveals the scale of the cloudscape. In it, a jumbo jet is reduced to the size of a child's toy as it seems to skate sideways across the sky, its contrail a disappearing scar. There are times when the plane flies between two strata of cloud, Sometimes a hole in the clouds above lets the sunlight through. The rays edged in darkness seem to radiate outwards from behind the clouds and illuminate spectacularly, not the earth, but the clouds below. We call this Godlight. To overfly the Sahara by day at 30,000 feet is to feel how it might be to circumnavigate the sun. 
Nothing save raw light in colours from deep orange to pale yellow, very occasionally fractured by imprecise dark and jagged streaks, which one supposes to be riverbeds or rock formations. Otherwise, there is but the brightness of the sand reflecting the sun's rays, and depending on the exact altitude and tilt of the aircraft, the line where the orange glow of the ground beneath diffuses into the white band of the horizon, which in turn diffuses into blue sky. To overfly the Sahara by night must be what space travel feels like. Gone are the indicators of life, the lights of civilization one sees flying over what one supposes to be the most barren of lands. Even there, in some crease in the earth, inevitably a winking light or a lone road leading from where to where, it is impossible to know. The Sahara at night is blackness unmarred by a single star. You cannot tell where the land and sky meet. Only there is this, beyond the reach of the wingtip, a keen-edged moon. The last time I took a daytime flight over the Sahara was a few years ago on a return trip from Johannesburg. The moment we took off, the cabin staff toured the cabin and lowered the blinds. People found their headsets and turned on the screens in front of them. Light flared around the edges of the blinds and once, when I dared to raise mine over the Sahara, the light leapt in like a living creature. When I fly, I think of what a caveman would think if he saw this, or even knew that one day somebody would. I think of the generations in the not-so-distant past who never saw such a view. I think of those in the future who never will see what wonder our generation's wantonness with the world's natural resources has made possible. The day will come when we will be nostalgic about flying. As incredible as that once seemed, the experience of having our travel curtailed by the pandemic of 2020 brought that feeling closer to many of us. One day this may be gone, sooner than we allowed ourselves to imagine. Only in flight does one become aware of how much of the world has resisted humankind. The snow-filled corrugations of the mountain ranges of Central Europe, where it is impossible to know where one country ends and another begins. At such times, even the flight map which traces the path of the plane on the screen in front of you is as effective as pin the tail on a donkey. A ruffle of mountains falls, a new one rises. Once I imagined we must be flying over the Alps, though I think now it was the massive Centrale, because a short time later I looked down and saw the real Alps. I was entirely unprepared for their scale. They seemed to stretch upwards, reaching not so much for the sky, but as if, as if to swap the plane out of it. I have skied the Alps, and I remember being awed by their beauty, but I could see only what filled the frame of my vision, which I realized once I was flying over all 1,200 kilometers of them, lying across eight countries, wasn't very much at all. Uh.
Wonderful. Thank you. I love how you capture the feeling of wonder being in the air and above it all and in the sense of perspective and the remove, the distance, the good fortune of it all and the gravity of the good fortune. All of these things also suffuse your essays, even when the, the essays are not concerned with being in a plane, all of these sensations of being in the window seat are suffused in these essays. And there's this sense of perspective, uh, of deep perspective that, that I think comes from having lived in so many places, having traversed so many different cultures. One of the things I appreciate most in these essays is the, the context that you bring to the places that you travel. And this context is both personal and informational, political, You've got this terrific essay about Obama, Obama and the Renaissance generation. And you mentioned briefly in your opening remarks, your father's generation, and this is also Obama's generation. And this struck me as, as a particularly important pressing essay for Americans in this political moment that we're in. Just understanding how our politics, how our political past and future are connected to the politics of other places, specifically Africa. You write in this essay that I read this essay just after the, the Capitol insurrection. And uh, so it was right in that moment when I was reading this. And you write, uh, those of us in the West have slowly come to the realization that nation building is no simple task. Mm. That democracy takes more than a parliament building. That, those words had a lot of resonance for me in that moment. Um, and you go on to say, the generation of Africans to whom the task fell of creating new countries knew or came to know that alongside the desires and dreams and the promise of a newfound freedom, they had been set up to fail. And you go on to say, they went forward anyway. And we have, as Americans, I think, so much to learn from that effort in this particular moment, in this particular time in our history. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to that essay, to that generation, to that political reality that you're, you're writing about in that essay. I think my sense of perspective comes from being a very small person <laughs> by giants. You know, I was raised by a generation who thought in the broadest terms possible, they had been tasked with creating their countries. You know, so for those who haven't raised the essay, the Renaissance generation, which was Wallace Shoyinkit's phrase, and which encompassed my father and my stepmother, and you know, all my uncles and aunts and the people who, who were part of the, you know, the, the village that raised me, they were given scholarships to go to the West, to go to Britain for the West Africans. And, and then later on, it would be, as these things played out on a global scale, you know, it would be East Germany and Russia and China and everybody who wanted a piece of Africa. But they went to Britain and they were given scholarships by their country. And, and the whole point, I mean, the entire endeavor, the job they were given was that they had to come back and they had to bring to their countries everything that they had learned in order to prepare their countries to deal with the world, right? They had to understand the world. That was the job they were given. You go out, you understand the world, you figure out how these people think and how to negotiate with them. And you bring that back so that we can do that. 
And that is almost entirely where my worldview came from. And of course, my mother, because my father married a, a Scottish woman who was very adventurous, but she also had a vision. But she was not part of that initial drive, you know, that endeavour with a very fixed purpose. You know, I think really by the time my father got back to Sierra Leone, he realised what the game was. You know, I think he already realised he was a young man and he was a doctor. He went into politics very quickly. I think he realised what the game was and that uh, you know, he did understand Britain. And Britain was where so much of the anti-colonial fight began way back before, you know, in the, in the 30, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, that actually this was where everybody met. You know, I interviewed Ngugi Wationgo and others, you know, all these countries, whether it was Pakistan, India, the West Indies, People were going to London as the centre of the empire, but what was happening was that they were meeting each other there. And what Ngugi Wathiongo told me is that he realised the first time he looked at Kenya from outside, and it was when he realised, oh my goodness, we've all got this in common, right? We've all, all the rest of us have this in common. So actually things were fermenting in Britain, things were fermenting in London. So in a way, you know, Britain ended up sort of creating it, you know, the revolution against them. But these men and women, you know, who became writers, who became leaders, who became cultural ambassadors, all kinds of things, they understood how the world worked, or, you know, as much as that was possible within that the time that they had there, but you know they, they they've got the thinking right, you know they've got the pattern, they've got the, they've figured it out, and that's what I was given. And that's what I was given by my father, and given by my mother, and given by the people around me was a way of seeing how does the world work, and you have to figure out how the world works, and you have to figure out that what can happen here can also happen there. That there are patterns, you see. There are patterns of the way things happen. And what I see happening in America is a pattern that I've seen before. And I've written about, and many people have written about, I mean, I'm not the only person to have seen this pattern, but I think that's why it is so vital that you know, the, the people of this country listen to those of us who've seen the pattern. There is something happening here and there is a pattern happening and you can forming and you can never ever take democracy for granted. Democracy is an everyday fight. You know, as the African nations learned, as nation after nation learns, you know, democracy is an everyday fight. This, this perspective is such a gift. I, I think connected to this is, is your essay, 1979, which is one of my favorite essays in the collection. It's a very elegant essay and it's, it's held by this period of time, but it's aware of the deep past and the future. It's the time stretches in both directions out from this, this moment. And you're writing about a year, 1979, when you're living in Tehran and you're a teenager. Um, you're a teenager in this essay. You're you're wearing a Che Guevara T-shirt, and you're you're enamored, as many teenagers are, with revolution. But as you watch this revolution unfold in front of you, it's somewhat confusing. And as revolutions go, it's not exactly like one's teenage romance of revolution. And can you can you speak a bit about that time and in that essay? Yeah, that's entirely right. It was more complicated than I thought. <laughs> um, so the reason I was in Tehran 
is because my mother, my parents had divorced by quite a few years. In fact, my father had been killed by the regime in Sierra Leone. He was a political activist. By that time, I was living with my mother and my stepfather. And my stepfather was a diplomat who worked for the United Nations, who was a representative. So it was really his job to go in and to try to negotiate the UN's, you know, forward plan in a country that was collapsing. And I arrived in Syria, in Tehran, full of the fervor that, you know, the world was changing and I wanted to be part of it. And I had the answer, you know, I had the answer, which I was wearing loudly on my Che Guevara t-shirt because I had very left-wing sensibilities. And um, I got to Tehran and, you know, it, it wasn't like it is now. You can go on the internet and find stuff out. You know, even our family who were, you know, my stepfather was at the centre of so much of what was happening, negotiating and and negotiating with the government, but also dealing with all the embassies, you know, who were sort of trying to figure out what their position was and, and what the fallout was likely to be in this country. You know, even we didn't know. We would listen to the BBC World Service. We would huddle around the radio in the evenings, which then there was a blackout and it was, you know, sitting there with candlelight. And, you know, it just wasn't as straightforward as I thought it was. I mean, first of all, I loved the idea that there was going to be a revolution and get rid of a, of a monarchy that had existed for, you know, X hundred years. On the other hand, hang on a minute, you know, the, the Shah had been a real, um, he'd really promoted women's rights. He planted trees, you know, he was apparently something, you know, an early environmentalist. You know, he had a wife who was clearly very much his equal, or apparently so anyway. You know, and then there was Khomeini on the other side and he didn't appeal to me in any way, shape or form. And then in between all of that, there were the artists who had come back to, so in, in the span of that year, and that at the end of 1978, everything was really locked down and shuttered down and felt dangerous. And you know, there was a curfew that began at eight if you were outside, if you were caught outside, you would be shot. We were freezing cold because there was no fuel. Everybody was on strike in the evenings. People would go up to their houses and chant, death to the Shah, death to the Shah. And then, so in between that, I would go off to boarding school in Britain and then I'd come back again. But it sort of gave me these snapshots. So when I came back in the spring of 1979 and the Shah had left, there really was a flowering. Right? There really was this amazing flowering. And the artists had come back, I remember, and I write about meeting an, a, an artist who I just call N, who'd come back from the United States, you know, whose father had been imprisoned, who'd been briefly imprisoned by the Shah, she'd come back, it was all changing. And then, you know, off I go, and then I come back to my next trip, and it's the summer, and it's all closing down again, all closing down again. And the comité are on the streets, and the Revolutionary Guards have taken over and it's all closing down again. And then very shortly after I left the American Embassy, was the, the people in the American Embassy were taken hostage and that was really kind of the end game for the West in, in Iran. But, you know, it, it was one of so many things that have influenced the way I, I think about things because, you know, it gave me pause for thought. By the time I was 14 years old, you know, if I didn't already know 
something about this because of the fate of my own family and my father. You know, I knew that things were complicated, that there were nuances and complexities and that one had to understand them in order to navigate the world and even your own life. Yes, yes. One of the amazing things about this essay to me is that the way you capture both that sense of confusion and not knowing what was going on and disorientation in the moment as you're you're watching history that isn't yet history unfold in front of you mm. and um and you you balance that real immersing the reader in this sense of it reminded me very much actually of the beginning of the pandemic you know something is happening but you're not mm. quite sure you what something it. big is happening and you're not sure what and you immerse the reader in that that sense, but you also bring all this forward knowledge, the, the knowledge of your future self to the page. And and also in every one of these essays, I, I learned so much about the place that you're in in the essay, including one of the places you're in is a place very close to where I grew up. You you write about Western Massachusetts, and which is really only a half an hour away from where I grew up in upstate New York. And and I'm still learning things from that essay uh, that I didn't know uh, about this area and about the, the wildlife in this area. I'm curious about your research process and where and when you choose to learn about a place and, um, and where and when you choose to communicate what you, what you don't know about the place. I, I, I love in these essays that balance between what is known and what isn't known. I don't know whether I can answer that, Eula. Yes. You know, I, I was a journalist before I became a writer and I was not a happy journalist. <laughs> you were a journalist as well, weren't you? I mean, I was a journalist because I thought I was curious. I was endlessly curious and I still am endlessly curious. And I was a journalist because I thought that it was writing while being paid. I think that's so much <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't have an independent income, so I had to do something. But I was very frustrated by journalism. I was very frustrated by the fact that we had to... I worked for the BBC as a reporter for the BBC, so I was very frustrated by the fact that I had to speak with somebody else's voice, mm. with a corporation's voice. Mm. And the corporation didn't in any way reflect who I was, right? The corporation reflected a middle-aged person living in Middle England. So... I was always having to explain things I already knew, mm -hmm. like where is Sierra Leone? <laughs> where is Western Massachusetts? And I was never allowed to get as far as the things I didn't know. And then the other thing was that I wasn't allowed to say I didn't know, which is why I love the essay form so much. I can say, I don't really know about this. I don't really know about this, but, here is what I do know, or I have thought, or, or somebody has told me. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love essays, because it's that fluidity and that honesty. It's not a news report that claims to have the answers to things. It is saying, none of us know, none of us really know how this works. Mm -hmm. I mean, so when I'm in Western Massachusetts and I find these um, shits on my lawn, I what on earth is this? And, you know, and I think, oh my God, some dog is having a terrible time until I discover that it's actually a coyote, that, uh, <laughs> that it's a... <laughs> and, and it was the... I mean, I, 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 and I've lived in various parts of the world and I've been aware of animals in the city 
but America has a, a very specific relationship with animals in the city. You know, and then I go on to meet the wildlife biologist. So I follow my nose, I guess. Yeah. You know, I saw the poos and I get curious, right? I just get curious. So I, 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 I think I identified them. Um, I, maybe I just looked on Google or something, but I identified them as coyote. And I thought, oh my goodness. And then I found a book called Coyote at the Kitchen Door. <laughs> and... I thought, wow, this is giving me the answer to the things I want to know. And I remember the thing that really, really, uh, that I really picked up from that book was Stephen DiStefano wrote it. The thing I really picked up was that some people call the proximity of humans and animals in America, some people refer to it as human-animal conflict, and some people refer to it as human-animal coexistence. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that tells me everything. And then I found out, because I read the acknowledgement, as I always do when I want to know about an author, that Stephen DiStefano lived just about an hour away. So I wait for 45 minutes. So I wrote to him and persuaded him in, the, in my final couple of weeks in the area to, um, to meet me. And he did, and, and you know, he sort of, he gave me you know, everything I wanted to, set me on the path of, of figuring this out. So, you know, there's a question, I guess. So, that, so when you ask about my research method, there's a question and it can be like, what is this? What's going on here? It can be as little as that, right? What is going on here? Mm. Or it can be, you know, if I think about a book I've written, you know, how does a country implode? I mean, that has guided many of my books, but you know, what is going on here? And I wanted to understand what is going on here? And so, and so I follow my nose, I really follow my nose. But I have to say, I think about things for a very, very long time. And I don't think about them every day, but every time I see something that makes me think about the thing again, that's when I begin to know I'm gonna write about this because I can't let it go. I have to know how this, you know, I have to know what the unfolding of this is. Yes. Yes, and that depth of thought is so palpable in these some of these very short essays you have in here that are just so rich and and so metaphorically loaded. It's it's rare that an author has an essay that can be read in its entirety in an event like this. But you do have one in the book. Would you would you mind reading? I do have one. <laughs> you know. Well, I think sometimes, sometimes essays are, um, you know, as I've talked, you know, they're ruminations, right? You know, what is going on here? They're ruminations. And then other times I think of essays as found stories. So sometimes you find something like, I, I, you know, I, I've been thinking about the street dogs of Sierra Leone for a long time. And what is it that tells us about, you know, what is, what is it? What is it going on here? And then you find a character, and I found Dr. Jalo, who was the one who, who has devoted his life to saving the street dogs. But other times you can get a fan story, and it's like you see it like that, right? So you know, I found Dr. Jalo, who was the character, but other times there's the story. And, and when I've taught essays in nonfiction, I've sometimes shown students uh, two Picassos. Uh, and one is, uh, okay, they're both bulls. And one is the bull that is made of the bicycle seat, the bicycle handlebars and then the seat. And then the other one is a sketch of a bull. Mm. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a Picasso-esque sketch, it's as you could imagine. And 
you know, I think of that like one is the found story, right? He found the bicycle seat, he found the handlebars. And the other one is how he saw, you know, the other one is fiction, it's how he saw things. So this was the, this was a found story. And yes, you can read this story. Somebody counted the words, actually. I'll tell you how many they are. In Timbuktu. In Timbuktu, I stopped a man to ask him the way to the post office. The man had a question of his own that he wanted answered first. Is it true, he said, that in Britain people have a thing about Timbuktu? Yes, I said. People think it's far away, like the farthest place on earth. At this, the man laughed for a long time. Then he gave me directions to the post office. Oh, I love this essay. It's, and it's so succinct, you know, it takes up a tiny portion of the page it's, even. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the reversal of the gaze. It's just yes. like, you know, yes. I mean, he, he just thought it was hilarious. And yes. then of course, Timbuktu was the center of the earth. And it was the, in the medieval period, it was, it was, one of the richest places on, in the world. There were four universities there. You know, it, it, it's where Mamasa Musa traveled with so much gold to Europe that he broke the banks. So, you know, for the people of Timbuktu who have libraries, who have manuscripts thousands of years old, they're just like, what is it? Sorry, I don't mean thousands, I mean hundreds of years old, but you know, uh, hyperbole. But you know, they're sort of baffled as to why the world would think that they were anything other than the navel of the world. Yes. <laughs> this, this reversal of the gaze uh, comes up throughout the book and really strikingly in, in your essay, Crossroads, where you're writing about legacy of slavery, both in the US and in Africa and specifically in Sierra Leone and about race. And it's, uh, for me as an American who's, who's read about race, written about race, it was an exciting piece because to, to see race looked at from another perspective. And you're in this interesting position of being someone who is white in certain parts of Africa and black in the US. And so you cross the ocean and your racial category changes. And that alone is, is a reminder to the reader of how mutable our ideas around race really are. And that it's, it's not a biological fact or reality, that it is, is social, it's cultural. And I'm not, I'm not sure what my question is about this essay. I guess, again, it's just a place where I, I, was, I was fascinated. Um, particularly by the story you tell at the end. You, at the very end, you close this really complicated essay with a story from your own family, from your great grandmother and your, your grandfather. Um, but before you tell the story, you, you tell us that Sierra Leone's other name, the one it was known by to the outside world for several hundred years, you write, was the Slave Lake. Coast. And you write quite extensively about the history of, of slavery and the slave trade in this particular place. Do you want to touch on that? We're, we're running out of time, so I know I've opened a big subject at the very last minute. Well, it's huge. I mean, you know, whiteness and blackness. I mean, I, well, I'll, you know, let me touch on that first, because you know, it depends who's the dominant group and who's doing the identifying. And you know, as somebody who's mixed race, because I'm paler than most, well, you know, pretty much everybody on the African continent, you know, I go into the white category. And so one of the stories I tell in that is being in actually Timbuktu, where I spent, I spent unusual amounts of time, but that's another story for another time. 
being in Timbuktu, I was actually filming a documentary and my film crew was white, but our fixer was a bit of black Malian and Obama had just been elected or was running. And I think he'd just been elected. And I, I was explaining to the white, to, to my British crew, that he would be seen as fighting this country as the Tuaregs were. And they, you know, they had the same kind of color skin as me and that Obama would be seen as white. And my English crew just refused to accept this, or at least the, one of them did, they completely refused to accept this as possible. And I, and I couldn't believe that he couldn't accept it, right? I just couldn't believe that he couldn't understand that if you, if you flipped, if you reversed the gaze, you could see that Obama was paler than everybody in this country spoke with an American accent, dressed like a Westerner. So why wouldn't they think he was a Westerner? And so the, we had a, we, the fixer, who actually went on to be a wonderful political activist in Mali, but that's another story too. But the fixer said, he said, you're in Africa now. And he called a passing waiter. The fixer traveled, you know, so he, he knew what the thinking was, what the, you know, what the complication of the fixing was, but he called a passing waiter and he said, Obama, black or white? And the waiter went, white. Yeah. <laughs> but to talk about slavery, which I'll do a huge subject as brief as I can, I think that, you know, that there was, Sierra Leone was the slave coast and many people were taken away. And what I try to, describe in that essay is what sl slavery meant in Sierra Leone and what it meant, what the transatlantic slave trade meant. And they were different things. So one of the stories I tell is how my great, great grandfather, or is he great? No, great grandfather actually enslaved my great grandmother. But she was much higher status than him. She was born of a king. Right, and he was a warrior, and actually, let's just say, you know, a militia leader, right? Mm -hmm. So she was much higher status than him, but essentially it was part of the peace negotiations between her father and him that she was given to him. And, and he went on, he actually gave her to his mother, and then um, his mother decided that she was a rather, you know, particular young woman and that he should marry her. Mm -hmm. And... My grandmother, Yabeas, wins her freedom. Well, I mean, what, what one must know is that slavery in those days in Sierra Leone was redeemable. You see, there were huge differences between the way slavery operated and trying to get a trade in America. It wasn't race-based, it wasn't the color of your skin or your class, it could come about in various ways. But the other really important thing to remember is it was redeemable and it was redeemable regardless of what the slave owner thought, right? There was a system by which if somebody gave certain items, you were redeemed and that was that. Mm. And, you know, people do talk about domestic slavery and, and, and then, you know, that, that people get upset there was slavery, slavery, but actually there were differences. And my grandfather, who was a regent chief, was also enslaved or indentured, we might use the word indentured for a period of his life. So like many things, there are complexities, but you get to the triangular trade and the complexities go out of the window. If you're black, you're a slave. Anyone can do anything with you. They can kill you. They own your life. They own your children. They own your life. Mm -hmm. um, and that is very different from the slavery that existed in Sierra Leone.
Yes. Which is not to say that, of course, they weren't so lento a culpable and part of it, but of the slave trade, but that they most likely, we don't know, but they most likely viewed it somewhat differently. Yes. This is so fascinating. I think we've arrived at the time where we are to consider some questions from the audience. I think I'll turn it over to Josiah, who's gonna, gonna guide us through. <laughs> yeah, we have some questions. We have some burning questions for you both. Let's start with Gretchen's question. Gretchen asks, or says, this is for both Yula and Aminata. What is the relationship between sleep and making art? Oh, I like that. <laughs> so there's an essay in the book about, uh, are you, do you sleep, Yula? So we have this in common. I'm, I'm a, a lifelong insomniac going, I, I know this is rare, but actually going back to my early childhood, most children don't have trouble sleeping, but I did all the way to, as far as I can remember, I've had trouble sleeping. Oh, I slept like a log as a child. <laughs> and now, you know, well, it, I realized that my sleeping is related to my creativity. Mm. And I don't mean it in terms of angst, you know, I'm not lying awake having an existential crisis about my novel. I mean that what happens is, I, you know, I naturally, you know, go through the sleep rhythms and then I wake up at, I don't know, you know three, four, which is when a lot of people wake up, don't they? Um, I wake up at three or so, 3.30 and then bing. And it, a thought comes into my head and I cannot get it out of my head. Mm. And it could be a huge thought, right, about, you know, some massive thing I'm thinking of writing about, or it could be the placement of a semicolon, or the better wording of a sentence, and it gets into my head, and it will ruin my night. And I now know that. I know what it is that keeps me awake, and it is the act of writing. Do you know what it is that keeps you awake? Mm, no, I don't Chemistry. really know. It definitely, if I'm in a project like that, if I'm, I'm deep in the problems of, of a work, I will almost certainly have more trouble sleeping. And sometimes it's actually productive artistically as it is for you. It's, you know, those, those many hours laying and thinking are, are productive. And I think I also just, uh, I like thinking at night when there's nothing else to do and mm nothing no one to be interacted with and no errands to run and you know I wrote all of notes from no man's land at night you know between 10 and 2 probably oh. whole book <laughs> but no, I wish I could do that no I just lie there if I didn't have to get up in the morning it would be completely fine I think yes that's the problem it's you know a, a work and children Condition sleeping <laughs> yes <laughs> They interfere with this. Josiah, what else do we have for Aminanda? Maureen was wondering, I mean, uh, well, she says, first off, she loved your novel, The Hired Man. And she was wondering what prompted you to write this story and set it in Croatia? Well, I had, uh, well, civil conflict is the short answer. So I had examined civil conflict in Sierra Leone through, by that time, two novels and a memoir and I was very fascinated by the fact that this, that the, I mean, several things prompted me into it, but they, they all circled the same notion. I had been working at the BBC when both wars kicked off and I was shocked and angry at the way in which the Croatian or the conflict in the former Yugoslavia was reported with every kind of detail 
politically, militarily, socially, everything. And yet when the same set of reporters went to Sierra Leone, and I knew some of them, I don't mean specifically BBC reporters, but across the board, they just said, oh, you know, here we go again, another, you know, unanswerable African conflict. They said it was tribal, it wasn't. The former Yugoslavia was tribal, but it got called ethnic cleansing. But anyway, I, I became really interested in, you know, how conflicts start and what they had in common. And I did have one good friend in particular who reported both conflicts who had, was more thoughtful about it. And I talked about, you know, what, what the similarities were and, and the differences and, you know, that's what the hard man was exploring really is like what the, the, the very many similarities, the elements that are in place when a conflict kicks off in a country. And then those things that are different, which in the former Yugoslavia wasn't a great many things, but it was principally the speed of the conflict was predicated upon the existence of the number of guns in that society, which Sierra Leone didn't have. We had very few guns in our society. We were farmers and the Yugoslavs were hunters and they had a great many rifles, but also most men had been through military service. So they were, you know, I mean, you could put an army together like that in the former Yugoslavia, whereas putting an army of farmers together takes a bit longer. Um, but, you know, so it's interesting exploring their similarities and differences, but it was about civil conflict and the fact that they were contemporaneous civil conflict. Aminata, Forna, and Yula, thank you so much for, for being part of the City Lights Live event. If you haven't purchased the window seat yet, check it out. All right, once again, y'all give it up for our, our two amazing writers of the evening. Uh, Aminata, Yula, muchas gracias so much for coming in. I wish you were here at the bookstore so we could go across the street and have a drink of Vesuvio's, but we're going to owe you that. When y'all come in, we'll get you a new leather jacket too, Aminata. I promise. <laughs> Thank you. All right. All right. Thank All right, you so much. much. Take care. Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming. I enjoyed it so much. Gracias, mi gente. City Lights loves you. Bye. Bye-bye. Good night. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.